0: Thank you for listening to the Share in Church podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at sharingchurch.com. Now, we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8, if you would. John chapter 8 is where we'll be. We're in this series called That You May Believe. Um, leading us uh, through the book of John. We're doing it a chapter at a time, and so we've asked you to participate um, in reading each chapter as we lead up to it. There's only so much that we can uh, teach in the time that, that we're given, but the same Holy Spirit lives in me, lives in you. And so you can read and study the Bible as well. There's some tools and resources on our website as a way for you to um, engage in that, in that journey. So to catch us up, uh, some context. Uh, Jesus has... Um, People have come back to Jerusalem. It's kind of his, it's in the middle of his second year of earthly ministry, between the second and third year of his earthly ministry, he's on the way to the cross. We're in year three, on the way to the cross. He came back to Judea in Jerusalem, um, where the Jews have all gathered for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Sukkot, whatever your translation says, and it's one of three major feasts, and they've made a pilgrimage, many of them, back to Jerusalem in Judea for this feast. It's a seven-day festival. It culminates on the seventh day. At the end of John chapter 7, the seventh day, uh, the priest every night at the feast has a pail of water that he's taken from the pool of Siloam, which we'll read about in John chapter 9, and he dumps a little bit of that water out. And on the final night, night 7, he empties the bucket only to show you there's nothing left in it that is empty. And it's a reminder for the people of Israel, the Jews, to pray for the coming Messiah they talk about him being the living water from Jeremiah, and Jesus, The night, this night at Sukkot, at the Feast of Booths, stands up at the temple as the priest is pouring that out, and he says, I am the living water. I'm the living water, he says at the end of John chapter 7. Pharisees uh, don't like that. The Jews who are against him don't like that. They um, cause some more issues. So then we find we're here in John uh, chapter 8, where Jesus is going to make the declaration that he is the light of the world. That's all in context of what's happening in location, of geography, as well as just in context of Scripture and in kind of the Jewish festival feast season as well. But before we get there, I want to do some work on understanding what light is biblically. There's a way of studying the Bible where it's called the theology of first mention. So whenever you see something come up in Scripture, a great way to understand, hey, I don't understand that, find out where it first appears in Scripture, and you'll probably find the purest version of that. You'll find the purest version of whatever uh, concept or idea that that is. So we're going to talk about light a little bit today, and uh, that comes from originally in Genesis. So on the screen will come Genesis chapter 1, the first page, the first words of the Bible, uh, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. But then verse 2 says that the earth was without form and it was void. And there was darkness hovering, or was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, before creation begins, in um, eternity past, all the way back in eternity, the earth was formless and void. And there was darkness everywhere. So, uh, Jewish authors in the Old Testament, and some of the New Testament, would refer to this as kind of a chaotic. Darkness refers to chaos. In fact, whenever they reference seas and water, it's going to reference back to the darkness and chaos based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So darkness was there, and it was chaotic. And God had a plan for creation, but there, something had to happen before creation could occur. Because it's dark and chaotic... Something else had to happen. So in verse three, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first mention of light in scripture is from Genesis chapter one, verse three, when God says, let there be light. The context is that there's darkness and chaos and God speaks light into existence before creation. So before creation can happen, light has to be in place because light exposes the chaos. Light exposes Uh, those things. So I don't know what kind of um, how you feel about cleanliness in your house and messiness and all that. Some people are just fine with messiness in their house, and I don't understand you people, but you are. You're fine with it. Um, Some of us, as we get older, we become less adapt to it, and then we we realize we're hoarders, and so then we have that going on. But um, maybe you have teenagers, and so students, I love you, but your rooms are disgusting. And so maybe their are rooms. Um, you know that you cannot walk into their bedroom. Maybe you have this room in your house that you know if it's dark, it's just not safe to walk into. It's just not a safe place. Uh, we have boys, and our boys love playing with Legos, and no room was safe in our house in the dark. Um, so we were careful about that. So what happens when you walk into a room where you know there's going to be chaos in the, in the dark is that you turn the light on. So you might see where, those, where the chaotic spots are. And um, if you're an obedient child and you love your, your mother well, you will clean up those things um, that you find in the dark and you'll put them where they belong. You'll give form and order to what was once chaotic. That's the point of light, that it reveals that. Now, what we do, many of us, is we turn the light on just enough to push our dirty clothes to the side to get a walkway to our bed. And then we turn the light back off. And that's all we need. Once you memorize that path and you've worn that path into your carpet, you, you know where the chaos is and where to get around it. But if we're gonna put order to chaos, first needs to be exposure. First needs to be light to expose the mess. This is what Genesis is telling us that God spoke light into existence that he might then be able to put form and order to the chaos. He separates the darkness in verse uh, four. God saw that the light was good and he separated it from the darkness. He begins to put order to it. So this is what light does. Light exposes chaos. Light penetrates darkness. Darkness does not overcome light. Uh, when you open up your door at nighttime, your front door, darkness doesn't all of a sudden seep into your house and overtake your house, but the light from your house goes out and overtakes the darkness. This is what light is uh, biblically. Light comes before form. Light comes before life because light exposes chaos. So light has to come before even new creation. Exposure has to happen before even new creation. And it leaves us with a choice, a decision to make. Like in our rooms, when the light exposes the chaos, what do we do with it? Do we turn the light off and then just jump into the bed and hope to sleep and forget about it? Or do we put things where they belong? Do we address the chaos? I think biblically, spiritually speaking, it's the same question for us. When the Lord illuminates the chaos, when he illuminates the sin in our hearts, what do we do with it? Do we put form and order to it? Do we put it where it rightly belongs? Or do we just deal with it and learn how to maneuver life away to a way that gets us some form of peace or rest? I want to show you an image on the screen just of a gradient from darkness to light. And I've um, been in counseling for a few years. And one of the most monumental things for me is when our counselor had kind of given some of this analogy. I'm going to embellish it a bit just for the purpose of what we're doing this morning. But. This is all of us. In in the world that we live in, between the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and the coming of Jesus in Revelation, between those two things, between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life coming in the heavens, then we live in between, which means that in our own souls, it's not pure light, but if we're following Jesus, it's also not pure darkness. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning, the truth of Scripture is that you're walking in pure darkness. Even the good things you try to do are just filthy rags, uh, to him. But if you're following Jesus, there's some mixture of good and evil in you. Paul says it's the war within our, the passions that are at war within ourselves is what this is. And so depending on where you are today, we are somewhere on this spectrum from darkness to light. And the farther we move into darkness, the less we, the less we see the light, which makes perfect sense, the farther we move into darkness. And as we get... F- very far into darkness, the light has little to no effect in our darkness in its current state. So as the light is positioned where it is, it won't make its way into the darkness. So there are times when God, in his grace, pulls the lid off of our darkness that the light might shine and expose us. In his grace, he does the exposing in a profound, dramatic way. Sometimes it's through the conviction of the Spirit, but often it's through being caught in sin. It's through being exposed as who we are. Because God has a new creation in mind, and he has to expose the chaos before he can recreate or create something new within us. And I want to ask you to raise hands, but I wonder how many of us have had that same experience of God ripping the cover off of our darkness, that light might come in. And when light comes in, it exposes our darkness. And so while we need a more profound light, because we're more profoundly in the dark, because we need that light to shine more directly upon us, what happens is the contrast of the bright light of the gospel, of grace, of Jesus, and, and what he calls us to be. And the great darkness of our sin creates a contrast that makes us uh, retract from the light. Does it not? Like it makes us squint. If you're, when you're in a movie theater, back when we can go to movies, and then you, you open the door to walk outside and you're like, it's still light out here. Now I can't see anything. That feeling is what happens when when through the Spirit, through God's grace, that he shines a bright light on our sin. That happens. And we have to decide what we're going to do with the light. Many of us are going to throw the covers back over. We're going to try to find the light switch with our eyes closed just to kill the pain and the hurt that happens in our exposure. We're going to read a passage in John chapter 8 where um, there's exposure that's happening, and we often focus on the one exposure, but there's exposure happening all around. And I love the way that Jesus works, that whoever uh, whoever is around when these things happen, the message is meant for everyone. It hits everyone. Everyone is susceptible to the collateral damage of Jesus' teaching here in John chapter 8. So let's go there in John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse, chapter 7, verse 53. A lot of your Bibles probably say that the earliest manuscripts do not have this passage. Um, a lot has to go into explaining this, but basically, we, we don't have the earliest original copies of any of, of Scripture, but we get closer and closer depending on artifacts and archaeology. and uh, The earliest manuscripts we have of the book of John do not have this passage here in the book of John. Um, some have it later in the book of John, some have it in the part of Luke, uh, but uh, most of them don't have it here in the book of John. The ones that we do have that have it in the book of John have been affirmed by people who created the canon of Scripture, and they believe maybe it was written by someone who walked alongside of John, or, uh, or John spoke it and, and they wrote it. The debate is not whether or not this is God-inspired, whether or not it's inspired Scripture. The debate is whether or not it belongs here or not. That's the question. So it could belong other places, but I think in context and based on where most of our Bibles have it, this makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to teach it as that. Um, I'm going to teach it as that, as in context, because it it does flow and make some sense. So that's just to handle that. John uh, 7.53, they went each to his own house. After this last feast, what John calls the great day of the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, After that last night, everybody went to their own house. Verse one, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives overlooks the temple. He's often there to pray and spend time with the Father. We'll read more about that in a few chapters. But he goes there. Verse two, early the next morning, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he comes down from the Mount of Olives early in the morning into the temple. Remember, people have traveled from all over to Judea to celebrate this feast, particularly the last one, this great day. And so this is the morning after. This is when you have to check out of your hotel room. This is when you gotta pack everything back up and you're tired because of the party you just had the night before. And depending on what kind of party it was, there's red solo cups everywhere and you gotta figure out where does all this trash go? Who brought this? And so they're packing things up. But Jesus goes to the temple. There's a place where Jesus would teach in the temple, which is called the court of women, which is as far as women were allowed into the temple. And so it's there next to what's called the treasury, uh, where, the, where the widow gave her two mites. That's there, and that's all happening. In the court of women by the treasury, at this point, based on this feast, would have been at least four, I mean, uh, 30-foot tall lampstands that they would light each night during the festival to symbolize when God led his people in the wilderness by a fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. That's all happening so he's not, he's not like in a church setting. He's on the stairs, kind of an outdoor uh, kind of amphitheater kind of place is where he is in the temple teaching. It says in verse two that all the people came to him, not some people, all the people. Everybody in town came to hear Jesus teach. On the morning after the greatest party they've had all year, and they come to hear Jesus teach. And he sat down and taught them. So pay attention uh, to Jesus, to where he is physically. Now he's sitting. A rabbi would stand to preach, or to give like a more prophetic word, he would sit to denote his authority in teaching or unpacking the scriptures. He's sitting to teach. And he taught them. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Some of your translations say in the very act of adultery, who had been caught, who had been trapped in, ensnared in the very act of adultery and placing her in their midst. Day after this festival, everybody is in town. Scribes who are the experts in the law, they know every loophole in the law, they know every word to it, they know how to get around things, how to uh, make people think certain things. They're they're, they're lawyers is what they are. And then you've got the Pharisees who are jockeying for authority. Uh, They don't like where they are standing in regards to to religious political structure. Jockeying for authority have now partnered with the scribes. And they bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I don't need to go into too much detail as far as what the act, that act of adultery would have been, but she's caught in the act. Not after the fact, not before, not they found some text messages. This is in the act. So they drag her from the act of adultery, and they bring her into the courts of the temple, and they place her in front of Jesus, but not just in front of Jesus, in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people who have gathered around to hear Jesus teach, unpack the scriptures. And the act of adultery would mean that this woman uh, is probably not clothed. She's not in her Sunday best. She doesn't have her hair straightened and then curled. She doesn't have all of that happening. She's just there as she is. Sobbing, snot everywhere, sweaty, hair a mess, naked, maybe, maybe a bedsheet, maybe somebody's robe that she grabbed on the way out as they dragged her out, but they throw her in front of Jesus and in front of this crowd. And already we understand that this is not about justice. This is about something else. Because if they really wanted justice, if they really wanted um, what God wanted for this woman and for her sin, they would have gone about it a different way. This is not about that. This is about something all together, separate. So they bring her in the midst. Verse four, and they said to Jesus, teacher, some of your translations say, master, this woman, notice how they describe her. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses, this is in Leviticus, I think, 23, Moses commanded us to stone such women. This woman now sees such. She's one of a group of women. He commanded us to stone women like her. You know women like her. That's what they're saying. You know women like her? You know how they dress? You know the words they say? You know the way they act around men, particularly married men? You know, you know the songs they listen to? You know the way she smells? This. You know women like this? The law commands us to stone women like this this kind of person. So what do you say? Well, here they think they have Jesus in checkmate because the law of Moses does say that the penalty for adultery is stoning its murder. It's, it's a capital offense that a woman caught in adultery uh, should be stoned to death. That is a, an offense worthy of that punishment. But on the flip side... Uh, In a Roman culture, this is run by Romans now, even Jerusalem is. uh, The Romans have said, we're the only ones who can execute uh, capital punishment. No one else can do that. So they find Jesus and they say, hey, here's the issue, Jesus. The law says this. She's a sinner. Caught in the act. There's no guessing. There's nothing around this. Caught in the act. She didn't confess. She's been forced to confess, thrown in front of Jesus, in the state that she was in, in the midst of that sin. So if it was that she was uh, snorting cocaine, she would have been high on cocaine in front of him. Like, there's no getting around it. But the issue is that if Jesus says, yeah, yeah, we should stone her, well, that fulfills the law of Moses, but it goes against what the Romans have said is legal, so they would have something against Jesus on a legal term. If he says, no, 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 we're not going to, so that he would justify the Roman law, there's a, yeah, but morally and biblically, you should fulfill the law of Moses. You must not actually be who you say that you are. And it goes even deeper than this, that we know that this was a trap they had set up. Um, sometimes I read scripture and I, for, I don't really think through it logically. So I think I've normally read this like stoning women just happened all the time. Like, oh, it was, it was a Tuesday in November and we had a woman and so we had to stone her. Like, I just feel like when I read it, I don't put it in context of this was a rare occurrence. This would have happened once in seven to 10 years that this would have happened. And here's why. Because the the stipulations around this capital punishment would have meant that you would have had to have literally caught this woman in the act of adultery, uh, not coming out of a man's house, not going into a man's house, again, not text messages, not out to dinner, not, and you would have had to catch her in the actual act of sexual intercourse. So nothing else around it, not just flirting, none of that, this act in such a way that if you were to testify in front of the court to tell them what you saw, you have to give them detail as far as what you saw, when you saw it, what their names are, and in the the company of two or three witnesses, there is Jewish historian accounts of women being released from the penalty of adultery because the accuser cannot remember the type of tree that he saw her and her partner underneath. So what they're saying is, we've got everything we need. We could tell you everything that was going on. Morally and legally, according to Leviticus, she should be stoned to death. What do you say? Verse six, now they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus, uh, in I think one of the more powerful moments in scripture, stoops down, my translation is say bent, so I'm gonna say stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Remember, Jesus is sitting to denote his authority, and now he's going to stoop to the level of this woman. He's not sitting now as a rabbi, but he's stooping, he's humbling himself as a savior. Philippians chapter two, that Jesus, um, he gave up equality with God and submitted himself, became obedient, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He stoops. From this seat, he stoops down next to her. And with his finger, he begins to write on the ground. And this is amazing what happens here. She's dragged in. You hear the clanging of of the belts and and jewelry from the Pharisees and the scribes. You hear a woman wailing, weeping. You hear her wiping her face. You hear all of that. Jesus is teaching thousands of people. The moment they come in, you, you think they're still focused on Jesus? One person can get up from here and go to the bathroom, and I lose all of you for 10 minutes. This happens, they all turn to this woman, and they're watching, I mean, aghast at what's happening naked woman dragged into the temple by the Pharisees that they know. They know them. These are their rabbis. These are their Pharisees. They bring her, throw her, I'm sure not gently, in front of Jesus. All the attention is there. And then at that moment, Jesus then takes the attention off of her and onto him, and he stoops down next to her. Doesn't say a word. But he takes all the attention, takes all the gazes, all of the, uh, the judgmental eyes now come upon Jesus. And it's true for us, because now he's gonna write in the dirt. John will tell us again that he writes in the dirt. And for many of us who know this story, the number one question we have is, what is he writing in the dirt? I mean, hasn't even, even us, hasn't Jesus taken the attention off of the woman and put it on himself? Even for us in 2021. And listen, today, if you are like this woman and you are the accused, here's how the grace of Jesus works. When you are exposed, when your sin is brought to the light, when the light shines onto your chaos, the grace of Jesus stoops down next to you and he takes all the glances. He takes all the judgment. He takes the attention. This is the love of our Savior. He stoops down and he writes with his finger it's interesting. Um, it's the only time that we see Jesus writing. The Greek word here for writing is not just like you would write in school, but it's, it's to write against is the idea. But the author here is particular that he says he wrote with his finger. There's two other times in scripture that we know that, that God wrote with his hand or with his finger. And the first would have been back in Exodus 30 when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. Exodus 31 verse 18 And God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God. Now, Jesus is God, so he's also writing with his finger. You know what commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That moment is pushed right into this moment. And Jesus is kneeling, stooping next to this woman, and the very finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments is now writing in the dirt. The very finger of God that wrote, Thou shalt not commit adultery, is now kneeled next to an adulterous woman, writing again with his finger. Then the question, we don't we don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's saying. But this is a shift for us from the old covenant of the old testament into the new covenant. A year and a half earlier, Jesus would have given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, in which he says, I did not come to do away with the law. I did not come to do away with the Ten Commandments or the prophets. In fact, I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill every period, every comma, every punctuation mark. I came to fulfill all of them. I didn't come to do away with them. And in fact, I'm going to up the ante a bit for you. And if anyone relaxes any of these commandments, he is subject to death. You should not relax these. So I'm, I'm going to enhance what these commandments actually mean. And your righteousness needs to exceed that. This is Matthew chapter five, verse 20, that of the Pharisees and scribes. Coincidence? I think not. And he says in verse 21, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I say, if you even have anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. And he continues and say, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you've ever committed lust against a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You see, Jesus, the grace of Jesus does not do away with the commandments, does not do away with the law. It just enhances the law, moves in from a heart of stone and written on a heart of flesh. So I don't think it's a far stretch to think that Jesus is writing that very same thing in the dirt with his finger. That's all conjecture, not in the Bible, but it all makes sense. Verse seven. They continued to ask him, what is your answer? Should we kill her? What do you say? The the law says this. What do you say? Jesus, what do you say? Quit ignoring us. What do you say? What, What is your answer? What is your response? Eyes up here, Jesus. Quit being distracted. Stop looking at your phone. What's the answer? What's the answer? And Jesus stands up. He sat to teach Stoops to be near and stands up to confront and he stands up to confront the Pharisees and scribes And he says let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her They thought they had checkmate and jesus is going to call their bluff And he stands up eye to eye and says okay Then you know based on the law then you have to be pure you have to be holy and not guilty of sin Particularly not guilty of the same sin in order to commit, in order to go on with this capital murder. In order to go on with this punishment, you have to be that way. And Jesus knows full well these men. And John 8 tells us, they begin to leave, verse 9, when they heard, I'm sorry, go to verse 8. And then, like he does, he goes back down on the ground and writes on the ground. Says his peace, and then he's back to comfort. Challenges, and he's back. When they heard it, they went away, the Pharisees and scribes, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They know, don't they? Jesus has just exposed them for who they are. They've hidden it for a while, and they thought they had hidden it for so long that they were going to get away with this. They're going to direct the attention now to someone else. And Jesus says, hey, it's fine. I'll play by your rules anyone who is without sin feel free knowing full well in the court that day Jesus is the only one without sin so they leave one by one verse 10 Jesus stood up to confront her and he says to her woman remember the Pharisees and the scribes said this woman or women such as this Jesus this is the same word he used for his mom in John chapter 2 dear woman Just an empathetic compassion. Dear woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks and she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. John chapter one, verse 14 says that God sent Jesus full of grace and truth. Not either or. Not 75% and 25%, full 100% of both. And what you just read in John chapter eight, verse 11, neither do I condemn you, grace, and from now on, sin no more, that's truth. It's not cheap grace, well, I don't condemn you. Keep going on with your adultery. It's not, it's not a heavy-handed truth. Yeah, you're a sinner, I should have killed you, but you do better. So I don't condemn you. No, go on and sin no more. Continue living and sin no more. And you can imagine, because those of us already, some of us who have pharisaical tendencies, this is rising up in us an issue, isn't it? Hold on. Because the law is clear. And this woman is a sinner. I mean, there's no guessing. There's no trying to figure it out. She can't explain her way out of this. She can't justify her way out of it. Caught in the act. She deserves the consequences. See, this woman has been exposed in her sin literally and figuratively. She is a profound sinner. But the Bible is clear throughout Scripture, even in Romans chapter eight, verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not uh, not you get a little less condemnation, not it's watered down, not it's not full on. None, 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 no condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. If you're here this morning and you are like her, you are the accused. Here's the cry of scripture for you. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Neither does Jesus condemn you. Now go and sin no more. But the difference is she's been exposed. She has been forced into confession. Have you confessed? Have you been exposed? Has light uh, perpetuated through your darkness and shown the chaos? The reason that those of us, if you're like me, Um, who are the accused, the reason we don't confess is because we'd rather walk in condemnation than in the consequences of the world. You wanna know why she hasn't confessed yet? Because she knows what it will cost her in the world. You wanna know why you and I don't confess to our sin? Because we've counted the cost. We know that it might cost me my family. It might cost me my friendships. It might cost me my job. It might cost me uh, my reputation. It might cost me any future hope I have of doing what I've been doing. So we don't confess. And all the while, we're heaping condemnation on ourselves. But we would rather walk in the guilt of darkness than in the freedom of confession. But Jesus, this isn't just about her. The whole book of John isn't about these people. This is about something else. So verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. Who's the them? This describes the Pharisees, which means this. Jesus said, hey, I'm not done. I'm not done. And he's in the court of women, There's these lanterns um, that had just been lit. They've been extinguished the night before. And he says to them, to the scribes and the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. You notice how these aren't lit anymore, but I am? I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't think these are words of condemnation. I think this is an invitation to the scribes and Pharisees. You want what she has? Come on, it's for you too. The reason you're upset is because you feel like she got a freedom that she didn't deserve. That same freedom's available to you. Also, accuse her, it's available to you. Do you want it? I am the light of the world. Do you want the light of life? Whoever follows me won't have to walk in darkness anymore. I think it's an invitation to them context, everything around. I think it's an invitation to them. Then John 8 continues. They're like, well, maybe, maybe I believe that you are. And then Jesus keeps saying more things. And at one point he says, you are of your father, the devil. He is your father. They're like, no, no, no. Abraham's our father. He's like, no, 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 no. Because if Abraham was your father, you would know who I am. You don't know who I am. Your father is the devil. And these are pastors, right? These are religious people. So it continues on back and forth. It gets more and more intense as it goes. And Jesus tells them that he was actually there before Abraham was. That's just, they can't believe that. You're not greater than Abraham. John chapter eight, verse 59. After that statement, they, the scribes and Pharisees, picked up stones to throw at him, at Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Conjecture, but I wonder if they're the same stones they dropped at the beginning of John chapter eight that were meant for that woman. I mean, they were probably ready to stone her. And now their anger has shifted from this, from what they kind of portrayed to be anger at sin. What Jesus is revealing is like, in the exposure of this light, what you're seeing is your issue is not with the sin. Your issue is with me, deal with me. And the anger rushes and they're ready to kill Jesus there in the temple by stoning him to death. The stones ready for the sinner are ultimately meant for Jesus. So, if you're an accuser in here today, I hope you hear the depth of this statement. Your issue is not with that person or with their sin, your issue is with Jesus. When I become the accuser, the issue I have is with the way that Jesus handled that situation. And it's not fair. I've worked hard to be this kind of person. So why does that person get that? And the anger that on the surface looked like it was about that sin or about that person is actually about Jesus. That's that's what he's revealing. That's what's exposing here. In the midst of John 8, the light of this exposure to the Pharisees is so blinding and abrasive that they cover back up and they just can't do it. I will never confess that. I will never confess that my father is the devil and not Abraham. Why would I ever? And so this adulterous woman is walking in freedom while these men are still enslaved to their darkness. New Testament scholar Warren Wiersbe says that your response to another's fall reveals the quality of your own walk. How you respond to someone else's fall says more about you than it does about them how I respond to someone else's sin reveals more about my heart than it does theirs. And if we as a church are gonna be a people who welcome the broken, we cannot be a church of stone throwers. If we wanna be a church that welcomes the confession of the people, And walks with them to new life. If we're gonna say it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there, if we're going to be that kind of church, if we're gonna be a gospel centered church like that, this is no place for the Pharisee and the scribe. Those of us who have been accused, here's the danger for us it's not long before we become the accuser, though. We have to be careful. We may not be accusing the Pharisee of the same thing, but we become the judgmental person on the other side. Our response to someone else's fall reveals the quality of our own walk. Galatians chapter six, Paul writes that if anyone is caught, is trapped or ensnared or entangled in any transgression that's outright rebellion against God, the language here is that he's caught or that he's trapped or ensnared. Now, um, we are fully, we are full participants in our own sin. We don't abdicate that on anybody else. The devil doesn't make us do it, but the devil sets traps. The enemy sets traps for us, And he knows the flavor of cheese we like. He knows what's gonna draw us to the trap and he sets personalized traps for each and every one of us. And that's what ensnares us. For anyone that's ensnared in transgression, ensnared in rebellion, Paul says in Galatians, you who are spiritual, which is you who are led by the Spirit, coming off of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, you who are led by the Spirit should restore him this word restore means to set a broken bone. And if the passage were to end right there, we could all agree on it. Because some of us want to do that to heal. Some of us want to do that to hurt somebody. Like, oh yeah, I'll help you set that bone. Come here, big boy. But he continues, you who are spiritual, you who are spirit led should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, or some of your translations would say meekness. In this context of John chapter eight, uh, Jesus is the light of the world. And in his light, he has exposed this woman for who she is. A forced confession in front of a bunch of people. And he extends grace in no condemnation and extends truth and now go and sin no more. Live differently because of this. At the same time, he's exposing uh, the darkness of the pious Pharisees. He exposed the darkness of the profound sinner, and now he's exposing the pious darkness of those of us who are considered spiritual. And Paul tells us in Galatians that if anyone is caught in transgression, if anyone is a profound sinner, you who are spiritual should not act like the pious Pharisees, but should, like Jesus, stoop down to restore him in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. This idea of meekness is the idea of power under control. Jesus has the power and authority to to do what Leviticus says he can do. But under the control of the Holy Spirit, he stoops down. Then Paul says, keep watch on yourselves, brothers, lest you too be tempted. The temptation, though, is that we become pious in our restoration, I don't know where you find yourself today if you're the accused or the accuser. And the truth is, if you live long enough, you will be both. You'll find yourself at different parts of your life as both. And if you're here this morning and you are the accused, can I just speak to you this morning quickly? The issue for you is that you prefer the knownness of your slavery to the unknownness of your freedom. The issue for us when we find ourselves entangled in sin as the accused and why God has to expose our sin and why we won't do it on our own is because we're actually more comfortable in our sin and it's the freedom that scares us. Because at least in my sin, I know how to manage my guilt. I know how to manage my shame. I know how to manage my phone records. I know how to manage those things. I know how to do that. And I can find myself at least pretending. And if I have to pretend for another 40 years, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I'm okay to be 70% loved by God if this is all I get. I'm okay. Can I just ask you this morning, would you you allow God to love you, though? Like, let him prove his love to you. Because you'll spend another 40 years questioning if God actually loves you. Because the question you'll have is, yeah, but if he really knew. If this came to light, then would... Would he still or would they still love me? Would you, would you let God love you 100% today? Give him a chance to prove that the cross wasn't a fluke. It's not a mistake that accounts for you too, that all condemnation has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross. He has nothing to give you. There's no leftovers for you. Would you let him love you? Would you let yourself be loved by God? You're more worried about the consequences of the world than the condemnation of God. And there will be consequences to your confession. There will be consequences to your exposure. I've walked it. But I'll take the consequences of the world over the condemnation of God any day of my life. Because when you're so concerned about the consequences of the world, you live a divided life. And you can't give all of yourself to either. But in confession and in freedom, you can give yourself wholly to Jesus that you might be fully known and fully loved by him. If you're the accused today, if you're the woman, Jesus has stooped down to you and he's invited you to freedom today. Don't let the consequences of the world hold you back. It's worth it. If everything falls apart but you still get Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it. That's not something I read. It's something I'm living. It's worth it. Today, it's time for the sleeper to wake. But maybe today you're the accuse, accuser. And sometimes the light has to shine brighter on those of us who are accusers. And our propensity is to recoil. And we have a lot of scripture to defend why we're accusing That the profound sinner doesn't have scripture. The adulterous woman has no scripture to defend her adultery. But those of us who are pious have manipulated scripture to make us feel okay and we can defend it. The issue for the accuser is that you want to reveal, but you don't want to restore. You're fine with revealing somebody else's sin, but you're not going to do the hard work of restoration with them. And in no point in scripture are those two roles divided. We do not have revealers and restorers in the church. We only have restorers. So if you think you're off the hook that your job was just to reveal somebody's sin, I've got to, you, you're not. You're not. And you don't get to keep revealing. I don't get to keep revealing. Secondly, the accuser, we always see a pawn to play. We see a problem, and maybe those of us who are religious see a project, but we don't see a person. This woman was a person with a broken past and probably a lot of hurt in her past that she's trying to meet through her adultery. And Jesus stoops down next to her and restores her gently in the spirit of meekness you're the accuser today, may, the, may God in his grace expose that to you because you're walking in the same darkness A profound sinner is and you'll never know the love of God. You'll never know that he loves you whether you're righteous or not. He loves you because you are his. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes what I have asked God to do today, just to settle our hearts in his love today. Whether you are the accuser or the accused, we're all fighting to be sure of God's love for us. And we're gonna do it through our self-righteousness. We're gonna do it through our self-deprecation and guilt and shame. But you will never find it outside of confession. And you cannot climb your way out of darkness. You can only confess your way out. Anyone here this morning who would say, today I am the accused. Sin has been mounting. I've been walking in darkness. And by the light of Jesus, I'm being exposed. Or I've been exposed. And I want to walk in freedom. I don't want to move stuff around my room anymore. I want to put it away. Anybody would raise your hand and say, no, today, yeah, that's me. I, I can relate to this woman. I can relate to her. I need someone to stoop down next to me. Praise the Lord for your boldness. Step one. Anyone here this morning could say, no, the light has been shown for me in the darkness of my piety, that I'm actually the accuser. I was once accused, but I've quickly become the accuser. Anybody this morning would raise your hand in boldness? I need, I need prayer because I, I need to confess that I'm an accuser. I am judgmental. I'm pious. I don't want restoration. Praise the Lord. I'm gonna ask the elders and staff to come forward, and here's what I'm gonna ask of you. Jeffrey plays, just if if you feel the Lord compelling you to to walk this, listen, there are gonna be men up here and some women um, that I can tell you firsthand you can trust. Maybe you don't wanna pray with them today, maybe you just need to come and just bow at this altar and just to pray, you can do that. As Jeffrey plays, I'll give us a few minutes to do that whether you're the accuser or the accused, there's freedom on the other side of this for you. And there's a a savior who stoops down next to you and wipes the tears and snot off your face. It says, I love you. You're right where you need to be. I love you. I'm gonna pray and if I'm praying, you feel like you need to come forward to do that please do that we'll give us a few moments and then we'll be dismissed God um you are so good that's just not um words that we say or a bumper sticker or things we put on social you're good and I know it because I've lived your goodness and I've lived it in the worst days of my life that you're not good because I'm good you're good because you're good And God, there are people in the room today who are walking in darkness. And in your grace, you will expose them. And that's not a threat, that's a gift. Because they're far from you and they're missing the spirit of life. So would you give them the courage to confess? Give them the courage to um, be proactive in it that they might find newness, that where the light has exposed chaos, that you're putting things in order. Allow let them allow you to do that, whether it's in their profound sin or in their pious sin, God, that you would allow them to move them towards freedom today. If there's anyone here this morning who just not, has not named Jesus as Lord, and so you're continuing to walk in darkness, there is no light in your life. The gospel is clear that Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me. If you would just admit, confess that you're a sinner, Confess that there's sin that's keeping you from God. Believe that Jesus is the way to that restoration with with God and then live your life for him. Commit to him that he will save your soul and you'll find the light of life as well. If you need to come forward, you're more than welcome to at any point uh, throughout this morning. If you just need prayer for healing or prayer for a situation wisdom in your life, I know these men and women would love to pray for you in those ways as well. Just give us a couple announcements as we just sit in this for a bit, and I'll dismiss us. Coming up um, right now is our Egg Your Your Neighbor outreach event. So there are boxes back behind these doors where you can grab a box and um, share the gospel with your neighbor. It's a creative way to do that. We have 200 boxes. We'd love for them to be gone today. I think we can do that. There's 200 people in our community who need Jesus, and so a way you can do that. March 28th coming up is our prayer and worship night at 5 o'clock just a way for us to prepare our hearts walking into Holy Week, into uh, the passion of of Christ, into his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. So I'm going to invite you to that uh, on that night as well. And then our Easter services are April 4th, 945, 1115. Anything else? Okay. All right. Let me pray to dismiss us. And again, if you need to stay here and linger, they're not going anywhere. Um, They're contractually obligated to stay up here. So, But again, if you need to come and just have some prayer, um, you can. God, thank you again for this morning. I thank you for your good gospel, the good news of Jesus. I thank you that it is finished. Uh, for the profound sinner like me and for the pious sinner also like me, that I can find freedom in you. May we be a church of free people. In Jesus' name, amen. May grace and peace be with you. You are dismissed. We love you.